As we're charting toward the future, I'm not sure if you've checked your calendar yet, but uh, a month from Tuesday is tax day. How many of you are like myself, whose taxes, you know, everything is just in a nice pile and it's organized, um, but it has yet to be completed? Are there any of those like me? Now, okay, let's go to the, how many of you already have that completed? How many taxes are filed? Holy moly. This is, yes, this is, I had no idea the crowd with which I was working today. That's the opposite. You do get money back a little sooner if you can get that done, but, um, but also then you can stretch out your laziness longer if you don't. Um, at this time of year, the patron, patron saint of people during tax times are people like our friend Larry Williams up here. Larry Williams, the, maybe the thing for which he is most notably known is that he is the father of actress Michelle Williams, who uh, had spawned with Heath Ledger. So that might be why Larry Williams is known. But when it comes to tax time, though, Larry Williams is the champ because he's one of these guys who's always trying to maneuvering to see how he can get over. And he thought it would be wise of himself to figure out how not to pay taxes, income taxes. So he had a plan where he worked with two CPAs and a lawyer, like he actually renounced his U.S. citizen and took on California citizenship which is just how he decided to do it. And then he rolled all of his income into a trust. So as to say, even if I was a citizen of the United States of America, uh, that's not really income, so you can't touch it. And he was feeling pretty good because he got away for it for a few years, but then he took a business trip to Australia and federal marshals were there to arrest him. And when he was in Australia, he was able to figure out how to stay out on a technicality. So he just started living in Australia for years because he's like, I'm not going to pay taxes. But then he was kind of like, look, you know, like, I I just want to go back to America. So he basically turned himself in and came through. And just believe it or not, you, you cannot get out of paying taxes just if you try to renounce your U.S. citizenship. So it is not a pathway to success, nor if you set up a open type trust where an income, it does not work out. Friends, you cannot escape the tax man. And this week, as we are in uh, two different texts, we're going to be in Luke chapter 18 uh, to begin, and then we're going to move over to Luke chapter 19. That is the lesson that we are taking from this today, is that no, you cannot escape the tax man. Uh, and Jesus couldn't even escape the tax man. And we've got... Um, some instances here from the Gospel of Luke that is going to speak of Jesus' interactions with tax collectors. So uh, Kathy has been so kind to us read for us today. Kathy, we're going to start off in Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. If you will read verses 9 through 12 for us, please. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Okay, so verse 9, we get this good preface right here because we're going to see that the target of this parable right here are these type of people who are hypocrites. And they don't recognize fully that it's not anything that they do that make themselves righteous, but it's actually God is the one granting them righteousness. But they don't know better apparently, and therefore they treat others who they believe to be lesser than with them with contempt. 
So we get this Pharisee, which was one of the religious leaders of the day, and in the midst of this story, they're at the temple. They're going to a place of prayer. We don't usually think of those type of sacred spaces anymore. It used to be that churches all around cities were open so that you could go in during the week and, you know, kneel down to pray or to have some sort of time of solitude. We don't necessarily view space like that, but in the ancient days, they did. And we see that this teacher went to the temple to prayer. And we could say even that he is probably amoral because as much as he wants to be in this place of sacredness and holiness, he is missing completely how the relationship works. Because as much as usually people go to sacred spaces to look up and to envision God seated on high on his throne, when he walks in, basically he has a vision of God being kind of off to the side and himself being at the centrality of worship because I am so flipping amazing, no one can hold anything to me. And he begins his prayer by saying, God, thank you that I am not. Thank you that I am not. Now, even as we chastise him, this is the part where it starts to get a little bit personally. Because as much as you like to say, you know, what an a-hole, right? Like, who treats other people like this? How many times in our lives do we preface our petitions with those types of things? At least I am not blank. And you might think, well, isn't this actually a good spiritual discipline? Isn't an aspect of spirituality me being able to look back at my journey and see where I've come from? Because maybe at some point I was in a bad situation and I came out of it and I can recognize that I am better than I was. Recognize this, friends. Reflection is fine, just not comparison. Okay, so if you have been on a journey and maybe you've been through hell and back and bought another round trip just for your own educational purposes, if you have been through that aspect of a journey of yourself, it's not bad to be able to look in the rearview mirror and say, wow, that is where I was. This is where God has brought me to. That is wonderful. Where it becomes sinful is where we start to look at other people and just say, but at least I'm not that despicable and that is what this pharisee is doing his prayer assumes that he's righteous in ways that other people just merely aren't and friends you have no way to determine that and similarly it assumes that he knows exactly what's going on in the heart of the worshiper thomas merton was a um, catholic priest and he was very contemplative and when looking at this text wrote something that i wanted to share with you today it's very small print so i'll read it aloud to you But Merton writes, there is something of this worm in the heart of all religious people. As soon as they have done something which they know to be good in the eyes of God, they tend to take its reality to themselves and to make it their own. They tend to destroy their virtues by claiming them for themselves and clothing their own private illusion of themselves with values that belong to God. Who can escape the secret desire to breathe a different atmosphere from the rest of humanity? Who can do good things without seeking to taste them in some sweet distinction from the common run of sinners in the world? Friends, what Merton is trying to say here is the temptation at self-improvement is to try to put us in a position where we lord it over other people. Where you think, look at how far I've come. Those saps right there are so far off. Maybe someday they'll attain to where I'm at. And even when you're like, you know, that's, that's just not me. 
Like, I can't relate. Friends, even if you're not doing consciously, I guarantee you're doing it subconsciously. Because it's what happens. Because we view ourselves constantly with how other people are living. And what Jesus is trying to outline here is he's trying to bring all things back to the center. Now, Kathy, if you will, read about this tax collector who apparently is right next to the Pharisee in verses 13 and 14, please. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The important thing to see here then is posture. Whereas the Pharisee was standing with basically arms outstretched, saying to God, God, hey, just good job up there, man. Thanks for making me this and not that. Then we see the posture of the tax collector. Now, posture is a big thing. I don't know if you've followed. um, There's a very popular... uh, what I want to say, book out right now by Dr. Amy Cuddy. She uh, is a professor at Harvard uh, University, and she talks about the power pose. And what it's supposed to do is a pose for self-improvement. So she says, basically, is that if you walk through life with just a good superhero pose before you have to do something, that in that you will start to own up to the posture, Right? So you imagine your posture and you're supposed to become this. Maybe not quite as academic, but uh, probably just pulling hairs, is your posture as you sleep. And I don't know if you've ever um, you know, examined this here, but there are different manners in which people usually sleep at night. There's the most popular fetal position. And what that's supposed to show you is that if that is your sleep posture, that you're usually tough on the outside but shy on the inside. There's the log, which is great. It's, it's, it's called horizontal planking. It is those who are trusting and at the same time perhaps gullible. The yearner is inviting and open. <coughs> it looks like that they look so desperate to spoon but it's, they're supposed to be inviting and open. They are usually slow to decide. There's the soldier, the strong and silent. You know, for those of you who can just sleep on your back just straight away. It's supposed to imitate like a soldier's perspective. The starfish, which is great, is the most rare. Is They're supposed to be loyal and good friends. And then the free faller, those who sleep on your stomach. You're supposed to be free-spirited and yet craving control. Posture usually says something about how we are approaching situations. Let's look at the posture of this tax collector. And for those of us who have been here through any of our studies of the book of Luke, we've talked about tax collectors. Tax collectors, honestly, very um, frequently, were actually Jewish nationals. So they were basically viewed as traitors working for the government, and they had the ability to enact taxes just arbitrarily. So there was no sense of fairness there, as many of us feel about the United States tax code. Um, but <clears throat> the tax collector then would have been reviled. But what is his posture? What the scriptures say right here is there's a posture that is praying downwards. Almost like there's an embarrassment about even being there because of all the junk that is present within his life. His fists, and we see this, you know, this scene are basically slowly beating his chest in such a way to kind of inflict pain on oneself because that is the the weight and the burden of the sin within his life. And it is that posture, friends, 
coming before the Lord God Almighty, when juxtaposed against the Pharisee, is so glad about who he is that shows the reality of how many people come and approach their God. And maybe you're a good religious person and you haven't had that experience. But maybe you've been in the lowest dregs of your life and have come before your creator embarrassed. Looking downward instead of looking up, maybe so as to avoid even reflection in a mirror. Having a moment where you just say, I am the worst. And you know what? As much as we look at the scene that Jesus is telling and you're like, yeah, that's the... isn't this the classic? It's like, yeah, that's the bad, pious guy and this is the tax collector. Friends, as much as we want to be like, oh, we would have been the right people in that context, we would have collectively hated the tax collector. That would have been our obligation to do. Like, you know, if there's any permissiveness to actually hate people, tax collectors, you were supposed to. This was somebody who was squeezing money out of innocent, poor people so that a unjust government could maintain control. This is somebody who is getting independently wealthy while your friends were struggling to just even subsist because they had no money. He's a leech. He's a traitor. He should pay for all that he has done. He has even the nerve to come into such a holy place and say, why would God ever listen to his prayers? And yet it's that posture that comes back to it. And we see what Jesus is doing right here. What Jesus does is he takes... The, the competing views, somebody who we would think is the most religious and somebody that we think is the most vile. And what he says is that their postures represent God's view of what they are doing right in that moment. And the forgiveness that comes is focused on the tax collector. And when Jesus says then, for those who exalt themselves will be exalted, but those who humble themselves are <coughs> the switch right there, excuse me, For all who exalt themselves will be humbled and all who humble themselves would be exalted. When Jesus is saying right there, it kind of sounds harsh, but understand that that's really the view of grace. That's a view of grace within the life. So what we see with the tax collector in a broken person, head down, eyes adverted, um, fists beating his chest, what we understand is that that is the posture of somebody who has actually been saved. That's the lesson what Jesus is trying to do for you and I. Understand the lay lay of the land. It doesn't matter how horrible someone is or has been. When they come before the throne of God, forgiveness is available to all. Now, this is a powerful lesson. And if it were to stop there, that's it. But I think very deliberately, what Luke does in the next chapter is forces us to engage with this. So, Kathy, if you read verses 1 through 6 of the next chapter, chapter 19, uh, we'll see what we see there. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. So what Luke is doing here, and this is the other thing, so I just want to explain this and not go too deep into it, but it's important to note, is that it, it, each gospel writer is trying to arrange their story 
to show certain aspects about Jesus. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Arrange the story? Then is it all bunk? Like they're just writing a story and making up? No, but what they would take is certain vignettes and scenes and try to structure them in a way to show how compelling the story is. So like I said, next week we're going to get, we're coming toward the end of this book. We're going to talk about the triumphal entry as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. And everything here at the end of the book of Luke is about the culmination of everything that Jesus has done throughout his entire life. And in doing so, Luke tries to tell this weird story. By the way, map just in case, I don't know if you can see, but you know, at the bottom of the hill here, this Zacchaeus lives in a town called Jericho, which is right next to the Dead Sea. And Jericho was the major route beginning area from the Dead Sea area up to Jerusalem. And you would climb the hill up to worship. <clears throat> so the idea that we get to this point now where we have this guy Zacchaeus living in the city of Jericho, this is, says something about Jesus. What Luke is trying to say is, Who is Jesus? What does he value? And as he's going to his death, what is he trying to say? What is the emphasis of all that Jesus did when he was on the earth? So we have the introduction of this guy named Zacchaeus. If you've been in church at any point, there was a kid's song that was incredibly popular. And we would find all about this. It talked about Zacchaeus being a wee little man. And a wee little man was hey. Now... What's funny is that our focus on his diminutive stature kind of like really confuses us in the story. Like the point is, is like he was a short guy that was so excited that he liked to climb trees. And again, that just confuses this whole point because the most important thing about Zacchaeus isn't how big his hands are, I guess, Donald Trump, I don't know, is that he was a tax collector and his role as tax collector made him reviled. That's what we just saw in the story that Jesus told. He said, remember those people that are so despicable that everybody feels obligated to hate them? That is what his profession was. And actually, Luke goes a step further and says, he's not just a tax collector. He's like a chief tax collector. Worse than a tax collector, he's a middleman, right? And he is one working between the government and the rest of the tax collectors. So he's got to be like doubly evil. So as Jesus strolls into the city of Jericho, working his way towards Jerusalem... There's this crowd that comes about, and Zacchaeus is struggling to get access. And that's something that's very important as we look at ancient times, too. Access to <clears throat> those who were wealthy and opulent or was, was, just, it was just assumed. So even as Jesus and as an itinerant preacher, he would have been like, I'm hanging out with Zacchaeus on purpose because he has the chance to fund everything that I do. But instead, Zacchaeus cannot get access. Maybe it's because he's short, or maybe it's just because they're like, screw you, tax collector. You don't need to be near this guy. So what does he do? He climbs a tree. So I don't know when the, like, seriously, let's, you know, survey right here. Last time you climbed a tree, last five years, anyone climb? Yeah, this figures, okay. <laughs> 10 years, 20 years, like, I don't know when the last time I've climbed a tree. Like, can you, someone like me, I can't remember the last time I climbed a tree. Like, I've helped my daughter in and out of trees, but I haven't done it. And that's always what I'm doing, right? I'm helping kids into trees and then usually out of said trees because it's just, it's, it's not a dignified thing. When I was looking at, like, Google News this week trying to find something is that, as we can see, naked Louisiana man climbed tree through things at cars. That's the headline. I, I'm going to say that when you are a grown-ass adult climbing a tree... 
there's usually something that is peculiar about it. Usually you're either you're naked and throwing things at cars, I guess, I don't know. It just does not happen regularly. And similarly then, Zacchaeus climbing a tree was not a dignified thing for somebody of his stature, uh, both literally and figuratively, correct? Like he <coughs> should not be up in a tree. He should be able to get a meeting, a one-on-one meeting with Jesus with no doubt. Because those were called patrons in those days. I throw, just so we can get off the naked man with the tree, I throw Justin Martyr up here, who I don't know if you know, but he basically wrote the Latin Vulgate, which is the Catholic Bible. He, he, he was the one who wrote it. And you're like, how did he have all this time just to go and write an entire Bible? That's because he had patronage. He had somebody who basically paid him to do it. And people like Zacchaeus could do that. Specifically, even when it came to religious things. So even though the Pharisees hated tax collectors because they didn't need their money. Other people would work in the employ or do things for tax collectors because they actually had money. So a lot of people would just, you know, swallow their pride, hold their nose, and do whatever the tax collector says. says. This is the scene. As Jesus is walking down, Zacchaeus should have gotten easy access to an itinerant preacher because he could have funded his entire ministry. But Jesus is like, not interested, Right? So Zacchaeus is having a problem getting access to the extent that he climbs this tree. And as Jesus is coming by, then he stops the parade and says, hey, you, tax collector in the tree. Like, we're going to hang out. Let's hang out. And what do we see automatically? The reaction. And the reaction from the teachers and such around him was one of disdain. Because why would he want to have uh, anything to do with him? I think I... Well, let me, let's move forward, Kathy. Let me read, the, read verses 7 through 10. I jumped a little there. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. So as Jesus goes and says, Zacchaeus, let's hang out. Everybody, there's just absolute disdain. You've got to wonder, were these people present when Jesus just told that story a little while before? He tells this compelling story, right? About the tax collector and the, the religious leader in the temple. And he shows them that, hey, even though the heart of the tax collector might not be right today... God has the ability to transform that. That's a powerful lesson. They should have known it. And yet at the same time, once that relationship is established, once Jesus says, Zacchaeus, let's hang out, then everybody just says no. No tax collectors. Jesus, get it right. You're not supposed to hang out with the lowest people in society, those people who are deemed sinners. And this is what I love about this whole scene. So there's the reaction and then Jesus, Jesus doesn't do nothing, right? Because usually this is what happens, right? Jesus goes in the Bible, he says something compelling, he's shooting miracles here and there. Something Jesus does usually has the reaction. All Jesus said is like, let's hang out. The crowd goes berserk, and then Zacchaeus is like, hey, everybody, I am a changed man. <laughs> like, you know what? I'm just going to start giving back loads and loads of money here so that everything will be right. 
what Zacchaeus has the moment that Jesus points him out and invites him into relationship, Zacchaeus is like, this is somebody who sees me as a human being. Zacchaeus is in the temple with his gaze averted. Zacchaeus is near tears. Zacchaeus is trying to see his life change and he's beating his chest in embarrassment. Jesus picks him up and says, you're my type of people. You know what I really love about Jesus at the end? He's like, by the way, now salvation has come to this house. Like this guy, his life is different. (laughs) The thing I like even more than that is he goes and calls him a son of Abraham, which is a designation. He's like, this is a good Jewish guy probably to just irk the rest of the other Pharisees. But they're at this point of relationship where he says, look, this is the game changer. This person's life is truly different. It's all changed. See, because what it comes down to, friends, it's not how you start. It's how you live your life. It's how you finish, right? It's who we become. And our past, our history through the power of Jesus and through the gospel, have nothing on us. They can't hold us back. They can't contain us. So it depends. How do you handle your resources and what you have? Now, what I want to do here, though, is that, you know, really the, the sermon continues. But it, it could go way further. But I'm just going to try to read this because then after the story of Zacchaeus, Jesus starts to tell another story. And Luke right here, I think, is incredibly deliberate in the way that he does it. And it's a parable that if you're familiar with the church, maybe you know, maybe it, it's find it irksome because it's just ridiculous, but it's the parable of the 10 minas and other places in the New Testament, it's the parable of the 10 talents, okay? Let me just read this, Luke chapter 19, verse 11, if you have your Bible, follow along, because this is ex- immediately after Zacchaeus gets out of his tree and Jesus says, by the way, it's all good in the hood, he's, one, he's a good Jew, Then he tells a story and he tells this story. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. And he said a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then returned. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. This parenthetical thing I really want to jump to in verse 14. We could talk a little while about this, but his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. By the way, that paralleled something that had happened with one of Herod's sons that was actually ruling over the kingdom. So what Jesus was is like, hey, in case this story isn't familiar to you, let me drop some historical context, but we won't get caught up in there even though I want to. He was made king, however, and returned home. And then he sent for his servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out Uh, what they had gained with it. The first one came in, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you've been trustworthy in a small matter, take charge of ten cities. And the second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. And his master answered, You take charge of five cities. Verse 20. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here's your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you do not sow. And his master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, didn't you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I didn't put in and reaping what I didn't sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? And then he came to the, and then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they replied, he already has ten. 
And, and he replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. And that is your WTF Bible moment of the time, right? You're like, no, 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 no. That's not how it's supposed to work out. We are supposed to be risk averse, people. We're not supposed to leverage things. Like if somebody's given you something and you're like, okay, you need to do it, put it in the bank. At least a nice CD. So there's like, you could maybe take it out without the penalty of early withdrawal. You know, like just do something smart. And you're like, and then number two, you're like, what is Jesus's obsession with finance? Like he was really like, just wanted to talk about banking because that made him excited. And then just finally you're like, it just doesn't seem right. Like how come this person who has so much, you know, we always forget is that that person who had so much risked everything and yet it came back. And the point of this parable at a base level, even though we don't love it, is this. Is what God wants us to do is be good stewards of what he's entrusted us with. Right? Not to hoard it. Not to dig a hole in the ground and hide it. Not to put it in a sack. He wants us to be good stewards of what he has given us. And that covers a multitude of concepts, especially when it comes to somebody like this tax collector, this sinner. Is that we're all going to be held accountable for what we have been given. And our ability to view others with disdain because they aren't handling their lives the same thing with we are is a short-sightedness. It's us standing in the temple mocking the person whose eyes are averted and not, and not giving them the credit that is due then. Friends, it's all about what have you been given and what are you doing with it? Not so much about the they and the them, you know? You're worrying a little too much about Zacchaeus and his life when you need to look in the mirror and ask yourself, God's blessed me with so much. What am I doing with that? Now, again, mind you, do not incorporate these American values in here to put yourself on a guilt trip from what you cannot recover, right? Like, if I don't become the most prolific world changer ever, then God's pissed at me because I'm like that person who's wasted talents. Don't view it within that. Just view life within what have you been given and what are you doing with it? Because that's the beautiful thing. When you take what God has given you and you recognize that it's truly his and that he's God, you're not, can change everything. We've got to use well what we have been given. That's the life that we have been called to lead, and that is the power of the gospel, friends. The power of the gospel is not about us being so great that we have to achieve. What's the power of the gospel? It's that in spite of our imperfections, God uses it, makes it new. That's why I do love every week we get the chance to have communion. And what the cross does for us is it lends definition to our lives. Because what we're able to see is that we partake every week as a reminder of how inadequate we truly are. And that how when we come into the sacred space, friends, we should be on our knees with tears in our eyes, appreciating that we serve a God who forgives. That's what the cross does. It, it, it keeps us in check. So as we gather uh, together and as we conclude our worship in communion, I just ask that you take a few moments. Remember Christ. Remember what he did. And try to bring it, your life's definition 
through the cross to understand he loves you, he values you, he died for you. I'll pray, we'll commune. Heavenly Father, I just, uh, I, I do thank you for uh, this illustration of these tax collectors because as much as uh, we might not be able to sense how vile they were in that era, that we know there are people with whom we discuss. I, right now, perhaps in our lives, there are people who um, individually we're just angry with. We find them absolutely abhorrent and disgusting. And Father, we want your grace to extend just not to them. And we ask that you help us become centered in the cross. Help us to realize, Father, how far we've fallen and how in need of grace that we are and that it's your love, Father, that transforms all things, transforms us. Help us to look in the mirror. Help us to recognize where we've fallen short and where, Father, you always pick us up. Thank you for the cross in Jesus' name. Amen.